You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everyone. Peter here. Welcome to City Lights, especially those of you online. Welcome. Uh, before we get started, as always, just want to let you know we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatishaloni peoples. Always like to make reference to that at the beginning of each event and pay tribute to those who have come before us and who are still around um, as the original stewards of the land. So with that said, uh, delighted to have Hector Tobar with us tonight again, this time in the flesh. The last time was actually online and was fabulous, but this time, you know, just great to be here in the poetry room. So, of course, we're celebrating this fantastic new book, uh, Our Migrant Souls, A Meditation on Race and the Meanings and Myths of Latino. And it's published by our friends at MCD Press. And we go back a long ways with them. Sean McDonald, all the whole gang, love them. And, uh, you know, they just keep producing really, really amazing stuff. And so the fact that they picked up on this book, kudos to them. So this book assembles Mr. Tobar's personal experiences as the son of Guatemalan immigrants and meditates upon and decodes the meaning of the word Latino as a racial and ethnic identity in the modern United States. So he seeks to give voice to a younger generation of Latinx people who have seen their heritage demonized by propaganda, trolling, and so on, and aim to kind of disenfranchise and exploit them. But Mr. Tobar explores a wide array of subjects from the U.S. Mexico border wall to urban segregation from gangs to queer Latino utopias to the emergence of the cartel genre in TV and film. So this is a vital and very, very timely collection. And City Lights, of course, very, very honored to be celebrating this a book release. So Mr. Tobar is the author of the critically acclaimed New York Times bestseller, Deep Down Dark, as well as The Barbarian Nurseries and Translation Nation and The Tattooed Soldier. Just want to let you know, Mr. Tobar is also a Pulitzer Prize winner. Uh, he makes his home in Los Angeles, where he lives with his family. We're also very delighted to have John McMurtry with us tonight. He's the senior editor at the literary journal Ziziva, and this is something that was a late-breaking development. We're really, really happy that he's on board with them, and I think he and Oscar Villalon are going to do a really amazing job with Ziziva. Uh, he's also um, edited for McSweeney's, um, also a Stranger's Guide, uh, and, and his uh, writing has appeared in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, um, Lit Hub. From uh, 2008 to 2019, he was the book editor at the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, he's been really in a very, very vital part of the San Francisco literary scene for many years. So very delighted to have him as interlocutor. So everyone, welcome. And uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Peter. And thank you, Hector, for coming here and everybody here and online. And I won't tease you too much about this, Peter. I remember maybe a handful of years ago, last time we were here, uh, or I was here for the last book event, uh, where there was a little bar over here. So I suppose that book had a little something to do with alcohol, which might have been the motivation. So perhaps maybe for your next book, if you throw in something, this guy will set everybody up. You know. So, yes, let's talk about this book, Our, Our Migrant Souls, um, an impassioned, important book. And um, 
I, I, I want to start off with the design of it, which is lovely. And you'll notice here, uh, Hector, you're wearing the same image. Yes, I'm wearing this pin. bird here on my pin. It's a uh, swag here. My yeah. Yes. So, so you might wonder why is there a bird here? And you find out fairly early on in the, in the book. Yes, I think <laughs> perhaps the designer had another thought, but it hit me right away. Birds, plural, I think. Yes. And I was hoping you could talk about that because I think it's a perfect metaphor for so much of what this book is about. First of all, the design is by the great Rodrigo Corral, who's like this great Colombian-American uh, book designer, wonderful, uh, and designed the covers to most of my books, including the cover there of the Barbarian Nurseries and Deep Down Dark and The Last Great Road Bum. And just, he's the C in MCD, uh, the publishing house. Didn't know that. Yes. And so Rodrigo uh, designed that. And we went back and forth with a lot of designs. And I mean, to me, uh, the bird is, uh, you know, the bird is a creature of nature who knows no borders, obviously, you know, and uh, who and uh, birds migrate. Right. Uh, as we do as human beings, I think that part of my uh, discovery through the writing of this book was just how much migration is a human constant. Right. That we as a species have been migrating for a couple of millennia. Right. And then if you look at the if you look at the history of almost any ethnic or national group, there are stories of migration involved. So to me, that's that's a big part of it. The moment I was thinking of is you're with a woman uh, at the border and there. Yes. And uh, she's talking about the stupid border. I yes. think In those terms. That's right. Yes. There's a woman at the border who she is um, undocumented, but she's a DACA recipient. So when you're when you have DACA, you have kind of a parole in the eyes of the law, where you can go cross the border, even though you're undocumented, you get a social security number. And she does this really bold thing, which is she goes to the border and she visits this border wall and she takes undocumented immigrants to confront this scary thing, which is the, the fence, the border wall. And she says that I look at this fence and, you know, it's this famous spot where the border fence goes into the ocean. And she says, to me, it's kind of comforting to just see this fence with the birds on top of it, because inevitably it's an ocean. And so there's birds on top of this fence. And to her, it's a way of uh, demystifying this symbol. I mean, it really, it's this wound in the, in the United States. It's this wound in Latino people, the fact that there is this fence that separates us from our relatives. Completely. And you get into the history of that as well. It seems, yes. especially for younger people, as this ever-present thing, the wall. But it hasn't been there all that long, historically speaking. I mean, the whole stretch of it, right? Well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a history geek, and that will be evident to anybody who reads this uh, book. But um, yeah, the, I, I, as a columnist for the LA Times, I once wrote a column about the history of the border fence. And the fence, of course, hasn't always been there. I mean, it had to be drawn. And, you know, and there's a wonderful book, La Gran Linea, by an academic, by a, a geographer, about the drawing of the line, and essentially, you know, these two um, these two groups of surveyors, Mexican and American, have to sort of decide in this arbitrary point where is the border going to begin, and uh, and it's become just in the '60s and '70s, really, what it is. You know, in the '80s, especially in '90s, it became what we know today. But before that, I mean, there's an image of um, Pat Nixon visiting the border and shaking hands through a few strands of barbed wire where there's now this huge steel wall, right, of, um, 
of a barrier. Another yeah. moment where we find ourselves longing for the good days of the next yes, the, the, administration. administration. Right, exactly. Yeah, well, he passed food stamps, among other things. But yes, yes. So much of this book is an examination of the way things are. Um, why is there a border between the U.S. and Mexico? Uh, why, as you write, are ethnicity and race sold to us as boxes containing our skin tones and our surnames? And why do we have terms like Latino? So I'm hoping you can explain the, the origin of that term, Latino, which you use in quote marks a lot in the book and on the title. Well, yeah, on I the, think on the cover. Yeah, all of these terms which we live with, right? White, Latino, Black, Asian are all representations of stories that we tell about why we're different peoples. And most of them have their roots in bringing people to work and people to do work that, that other people don't want to do. So that's the invention of white and black is to justify slavery. And so the idea of Latino people being this different race of people, because even though we are an ethnicity, we're treated like a race, right? The rhetoric in the media is, is, is a racist rhetoric. That idea um, is something you can trace the origin of in the United States. You can see how that term has evolved. You can see there was a time when people thought of Latinos as the next sort of ethnic group that would assimilate like the Italians and the Jews and the Germans. And then you have the big migration flows of the last part of the 20th century and the building of these barriers and the, you know, the construction of this idea of Latino people as this dangerous, barbarous mass of people on the other side of the border, right? But the term itself, Latino, has a very strange provenance. You know, I say in my book that it's like the terms in Star Wars, Wookiee and all these other made up sort of tribe names. It's kind of the same thing, you know, because Latino comes from Latin America, okay? So Latin America itself is an invention essentially of the French in the 19th century because the French wanted to take over Mexico and they told the Mexicans, look, we're different than those Anglo-Americans because they don't, they, are, they don't speak a Romance language. We are closer. We're Latins like you. And so we're sending over this guy, you know, uh, to uh, Maximilian to be your king, but he's really one of you. That went well. You know, and of course, later they executed him. But, um, and so that idea of Latin America, that we have this commonality as people of Spanish descent with the French, right, uh, is an invention of this, you know, imperialist competition. Later, Latino people in the United States, you know, we're given this term Hispanic because we have this Spanish origin, right? Well, that term, uh, evolved, you know, people don't like it because it sounds English, Hispanic. So people use Latino because they come, it comes from Latin America. But my, one of my many problems with all of these terms is that they're silly, but specifically Latino, it erases the fact that we're also indigenous and black, right? So Latin is by definition, this European term. And so, and this is what has happened to Latino identity to all of us is that we have these family stories in which we've erased our indigenous history. We, we've erased our indigeneity. My family, my grandparents, two, my two, two of the grandparents I could interview when I was in my 20s, I asked them, what are we? 
you're dark brown, grandfather. <laughs> you know, you're you're from Tecpan, Guatemala. You know, it's what are are we Cancobal? No, absolutely not. We're Spaniards. You know, it's like what you know, and so and and in, in Guatemala and many places, Peru and Mexico, there's a long history of erase of you know. Okay, we can choose two surnames. Let's go with um, Garcia instead of you know Shunkash or some other indigenous name, which happens to this day in Guatemala. People choose to have a Spanish surname when they can, very often they do, right? Only recently is there's indigenous pride. So the term Latino hides all of that. At the same time, it's an expression of a kind of an alliance. So for example, I have a friend who's Colombiana. I am Guatemalan. I know a Puerto Rican guy. We have a dinner together for an event we're holding. It's a Latino event. Right. Instead of being a Colombian, Guatemalan, Puerto Rican event, because we do have some a lot in common. Right. We have in common, you know, the fact that we have ancestors who crossed the border, or who crossed the ocean. So these terms, you know, they, they, they have all kinds of hidden sort of meanings and stories behind them. Sure. Um, and even Spanish, I think. Is a, yes. Well, people in New Mexico, people in New Mexico call themselves that they say they call themselves Spanish because they are many of them are descended. But how about going back centuries, the, the, the term right. Spanish? And the term, Sp right. And even to be Spanish, well, to be Spanish also might mean that you're concealing a Jewish identity, right? And, and that was a construction in oh, opposition. Yes, in itself. yes, exactly. Thank you. Yeah, so for, so um, in, when the Spanish came during the conquest, these assembled conquistadores and settlers, they didn't call themselves Spanish. They called themselves Gallegos or Castilians, or, you know, Andaluces, or whatever. And they became Spanish in reference to the Indians. So you're Gallego, and I'm, you know, I'm Basque, but we're both Spanish because they're Indians, which is the same thing that happens with white and black, by the way. But that's another story. So your parents are from Guatemala, but you grew up in Los Angeles, in East Hollywood specifically. And there's one uh, piece in this book that's... Um, quite moving and really powerful um, and not just because one figure shows up uh, enough to give you chills for yes. people of a certain age. Um, I remember, I think I was a kid when he um, broke out of prison. Oh, wow. So, uh, and got caught eventually. Right. So tell us about your neighbor when you were a kid, just for a little bit, you didn't know him, but th I didn't that's know pretty him, freaky no. to have him. Right. Yeah, I mean, what, that the whole chapter, which began with in an article for The New Yorker, was the idea was I wanted to write about how I lost my innocence about race, right? Because I grew up in a very sheltered, very protected um, family. My family protected me from the idea that I was different, right? And I thought about the place where I grew up, East Hollywood, California, place very racially integrated, like a lot of neighborhoods in San Francisco, other cities, right? And I thought uh, about its history, and I realized, because I read history obsessively, that I lived 100 feet from James Earl Ray, the man who assassinated Martin Luther King. And I thought about how this neighborhood had ha harbored this white supremacist who committed this horrific crime. And so, um, so, yeah, so I write about James Earl Ray. I talk about his life. He was somebody escaping from poverty, like my father was, actually. Had a lot in common with my father, with the same time was a very progressive person very left my father was a leftist at that time very much a fan of che guevara so they were opposite sides politically but there were people running away 
And there's another character in that chapter, Booker Wade, my godfather, also a runaway African-American man, had led, had participated in sit-ins at the Memphis Public Library against segregation in the public library. He ran away from Memphis. He's a, he was busted at the library, harassed by the police. His mother put him on a bus to L.A. as a teenager. He comes to L.A. He becomes friends with my mother, and he becomes my godfather because he drove my mother to the hospital when she went into labor with me. He had volunteered to do so. He right? had volunteered Before to do him. so. So my life at a really young age crossed paths with this virulent white supremacist and this African-American activist. And I say, you know, it might seem strange to you, the reader, that my life has these, you know, crosses paths with these two very different people. But that's America. You know, the United States, we're always, we're always... We're, we're always placed inside the middle of this drama. And really, all it takes is a little bit of investigating to find out how our life crosses paths with American history. Sure. It's a microcosm yes. of America in a lot of ways. Uh, my place that I often think about along those lines is um, Whittier, California. Oh, within... I went to high school in Whittier. Oh, okay. I yes. didn't know that. Within um, LA County, I don't know why I remember this, that uh, Nixon. Yes. Back to Whittier Nixon. College. Yes. Yeah, I'm scarred. Uh, that, uh, <laughs> that he's from there. But right. then one of my favorite baseball players, I'm, a, I'm from Boston. Nomar Garcia so Nomar, yeah. Yes, he's from Whittier he's from also. There. So Whittier has changed a little bit, I think. And not it's so now many... called the Latino Beverly Hills. So there you go, yeah. Not too many uh, uh, Quakers. Not too many Quakers left now. So the, I want the Whittier history. So you, you got to write this first person thing. This is, you were there. So uh, any number of places, right? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, uh, yeah, Los Angeles is an amazing place and so much movement. But like this neighborhood, right, that we're in right now with its Italian roots and all the different kinds of peoples in Chinatown right next door, which is not an uncommon thing. It's in Los Angeles. The old Chinatown is right next to the old Italian neighborhood also. So, yeah. I think I have a long question here. See if it makes any sense. But um, as you write, this country has experienced waves of discrimination. Right. Um, against the, any number of different people. You know, the, the Irish need not apply, and of course, African-Americans and Latinos. And the hope is that white people over time will be perhaps more welcoming of people who aren't like them. But of course, the distressing reality is that there always seems to be another group to attack, whether it's Asian-Americans or gay right. people, or um, as we've seen lately, gender nonconforming people. So it, uh, it's really this, it seems to be an intractable problem. Um, and I'm wondering if it is, if you see it that way and um, uh, yeah. where there might be hope in that. Uh, and I, I mean, it's a constant fight, a struggle, I suppose. Well, I, I started writing my book um, because I, I'm a professor at the University of California, Irvine which part of that is like being this wise sort of imparter of knowledge, but also part of it is like being a dad because there's all these 20 year olds who kind of come through, you know, and, and they have all this longing. They want, they want to read and they want to, they want to, they want to be powerful. They want to have, you know, they want to have all the books sort of seep into their brain and become strong. And they live in this world with all this hatred. And, you know, they tell these stories about the ways in which their parents and their families have been belittled as Latino people you know, or the ways uh, where they've been traumatized by crossing the border or by separation from family or their status. 
And so I really wanted to give them a book that said, look, it's right for you to be hurt. It's okay for you to be hurt, right? These are the reasons why we're in this situation. And there's nothing wrong with us, you know, because there's a real sense among Latino people that there's something broken about us. You know, it's a kind of thing that comes up again and again. It's like, no, this is just the way of the world. And so the book lays out all of this history, sort of show, show our story in, in terms of the Chinese migration, you know, and the Chinese Exclusion Act and Dred Scott and slavery and the construction of Black as a racial identity. So our story fits inside that story. And to me, it's a lot, you know, it's a lot less um, overwhelming when I see it as part of this landscape. But the part of it, too, is that the more I, I looked at this, I realized that, you know, the construction of race is this constant in American history. And by race, I mean the notion that because of our color of our skin or that we belong to a biological, that race is this biological group that we belong to, and that because of that, we have common traits. So because I'm indigenous, Latino, I'm not smart. I don't want to work hard, or maybe I want to work really hard for a little money. You know, all the stereotypes. So that's what race is. Race is this notion that there's a group of people who share common biological traits, and that shapes who they are. Now, science has now shown that that's bullshit, <laughs> right? That the DNA of people who are, uh, you know, all white are, is more different than the, than the DNA of black people. I mean, in other words, that, that, that the differences within a group are bigger than the differences between groups. So to me, um, what's interesting and what I see is the way we always are constructing new ideas of race. And so when I end the book, I talk about how you can imagine that a future where we, like if I could suddenly, you know, snap my finger or give everybody a pill or set off a ray that erased all of the racist ideas from our minds, you know, that have, you know, that have been, that have been inculcated in us. Even if we did that, we would invent new ideas of race to explain why there are poor people and rich people, why there are people living in apartments and why there are people living on the streets. And I say, I see that happening with the unhoused or the homeless, right? Where people um, start to invent uh, this notion of the way they are, right? So to me, um, that's the journey that I've undertaken myself with this book intellectually is to arrive at this understanding of race is essentially part of this capitalist system. Excuse me, I'm in San Francisco, so I can say that. Uh, that really constantly is inventing new terms to divide us, right? And along Marxist lines, uh, I mean, there have been any number of books in recent years yes. that talk about democracy, how it... Right. Uh, Going to quote democracy, how it, something like it can't exist unless other people are suffering. Yes. So uh, yes, yeah, yeah. there's this one line in your book that I think perfectly encapsulates the uglier, uglier side of democracy uh, that many of us don't see or choose to ignore. Uh, and you write, quote, ethnic hatreds and race engineering are the dark force that created the modern world. That's it right there. Um, if you want to elaborate yeah, a little I bit on that. I've had this fascination with my whole life. I mean, my whole life. Uh, when, I was a when I was a kid, when I was an adolescent, I just was fascinated with the Holocaust. 
you know. Um, and, you know, Rwanda, I mean, I just like fascinated with what happened in Rwanda and, you know, what, what, you know, what is going on here? And it's, you come to realize that, um, that, that this thing that's happening to our people, because you know, there are people dying like in huge numbers right now in the desert, right? You hear every, you know, every few months you hear of a new mass death of migrants crossing the border. And it's just, you, you come to realize that it's, it's not that there's a moral equivalency between the deaths on the border and the Holocaust. It's that they're all, or slavery or what, it's that they're all part of the same story. They're, it's a continuum of a story of constructing our modern world, of constructing this abundance that we have, you know, in the United States, our comfort, right? Our comfort is based on these systems of inequality. And it sounds rhetorical. It sounds like I'm standing in a soapbox. It just happens to be true. You know, I mean, the coffee that we drink, you know, the, the labor that's required to bring the water to our tables, to keep the, you know, to mine the coal that keeps the, you know, the, uh, the, the lights running, all of those things are just all, they're all con constructed from human labor. And there are some people who, who, there are the people who do the work and the people who, you know, who uh, benefit from it. And, and that's just a constant, I think, in human history and in our present. You know, and so, for example, oh my God, I've been like on a couple of, done a couple of media interviews in the last few weeks. And so, you know, the, they have all these images on the border right now, right? All the masses of people at the border. And I've, I mean, the few times I've turned on CNN and heaven forbid Fox News, you know, you see these, you know, th these groups of people is usually, and they do this wide shot, you know, with these drones and they show hundreds of people in front of the border. And it's like this image of this chaos, you know, and they tell these stories. This, like, they're going to run across the river or there's like not enough shelters for them. And it's this chaotic thing. And so for this like month, this spring, that's the dominant, dominant image of Latino people in the media. You know, and of course, that's a tragedy. Yes. And we should know about it. We should know that's happening. But to me, the dominant image of Latino people is when I go to a suburban neighborhood and I drive through and all the lawns are perfectly cut and all the shrubs are perfectly cut. And there's a lady walking, uh, you know, a little boy in a stroller, you know, <laughs> it's like, and when I see uh, people coming home with their groceries, which were picked 90% of the, you know, the food is picked by, you know, Latino workers and half of them are undocumented. That's the image to me of Latino people. Well, your novel right over here, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. The Barbarian Nurseries. So to me, that's, you know, it's, um, it's frustrating. It's frustrating to live in this, uh, you know, in this media orbit where they're just, we're just being fed these one dimensional, you know, stark ideas of who a people are. So you do write about the border and in, and you include details specifically uh this one um academic i wasn't familiar with or an anthropologist mm. jason oh. de leon yes and the work MacArthur winner yes yeah understandably uh wow that that was yeah so jason de leon is this anthropologist who was trying to answer the question how many people are really dying crossing the desert because there are these statistics and there are some bodies that are found every year in the, especially in the Sonoran desert, Arizona, New Mexico, how many people are really dying and there are bodies found. But he, so he went to go see what happens to a body when it 
when 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 someone dies in the desert. So he took these pigs, corpses of pigs, put them out in the desert, and examined what happened to them. And you know, hitting cameras and everything. And you know, first are the the you know the the feral dogs and the wolves and the vultures. And within about a few weeks, you know, most of the body is erased. Beetles. And, was be- a- and then finally beetles. There's this whole sort of natural cycle of what happens to a corpse, right, uh, in, in the desert. And essentially, he discovered that these bodies, that nature was doing the dirty work of American immigration policy because nature is erasing the bodies. And I wrote in my piece that this is the perfect crime. It's like the perfect, it's the, per, I'm sorry, why am I laughing? It's the perfect sort of mass murder because it's taking place where there's no cameras and the bodies are erased. And yet people get the message that people are dying. Right. You, you equate it to the death penalty that yes. just as a warning, right. this is what exactly. happens. Yes. Yes. And it's this just, it's just, um, it's horrific. But as I say, it's, it's part of this continuum of the use of violence to intimidate people because essentially they've subcontracted with the cartels to scare the shit out of people to keep them from coming and so that's it's 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 and and not only that as jason de leon writes about you can find documents policy documents in which they anticipate that's going to happen and in which Uh, You know, the Department of Homeland Security says if this fence building thing works, more people are going to die. And that's that's how we'll be able to tell how it works, that it's working, is that more people die. So that's, yeah. that awareness. So what sort of work is he up to now? I don't know. I don't know. He's at UCLA. I know that. And he went to MacArthur's. Right. Probably doing something very important. (laughs) Uh, Switching gears a a little bit. you attended UC Santa Cruz, right? I did, yes. And then you, shortly after or right after, you came up here to San Francisco. I did, I did. And you worked at a community newspaper that I don't know if it exists anymore. It does, uh, El okay. Tecolote. I was the editor okay. of a Tecolote newspaper in the Mission District. All right. Yes. So, uh, tell us about your, so were you writing in college or how, how'd you get that bug? And so did it start college or? Were... I, I always love to write. You know, my, I, I write in the book that I didn't know this until I had written my fourth book, but my father, his mother was illiterate. She never learned how to read and write. So my father had this shame, and this is so common in Latino families. Female illiteracy is really high in the, Latin, in, among, in the Latino community because women very often as girls, it's not seen as important in really poor families to send them to school, right? So my father, this happened. He, he, his mother couldn't read and write. And he never told me until I published my fourth book and, but always loved coming to bookstores, loved reading. And my first really expensive present that I got was the brand new first edition American heritage dictionary of the English language. And it was like, I realized that my father who had a mother who could not read any word in any language had given me his son, all the words in English. So, you know, I always had this respect for the book, but I didn't know that you could be a writer. (laughs) You know, I didn't know that was a job. And it was only until I moved after college to San Francisco and I started coming to events here and modern times in the Mission District and all these other that I met writers for the first time at an event like this. And I remember the first time that I ever met a published writer It was Ariel Dorfman, the Chilean critic and 
you know, and playwrights. Oh my God, he was so cool. And then I met Sandra Cisneros at another event, you know, and I was like, wow, maybe I could do this. So this bookstore, and it makes me want to cry thinking about it, you know, it was like my introduction to like literary culture. And now, you know, I mean, my books are there, but also they're downstairs here. in the fiction section. You know, there's like my three books are there, not too far from Tolstoy, Tobar, you know. <laughs> so, you know, that uh, that was that was my introduction to the culture of the word. And I became an editor, became a newspaper by accident. You know, I wanted to be a professional revolutionary. You know, that was my idea, but there were, you know, it was not a really a very, you know, not, not a great, uh, you know, profession in terms of going to be the media guy, the, for I was going to be the pen, like Trotsky, the pen. Okay. (laughs) And what happened was I was in the mission district and I wandered into a panaderia, you know, a, a, a bread store, Mexican bread store. And they had a stack of these free newspapers. And I picked one up and I started reading it and it said, we need volunteer writers and editors. And so I went to go volunteer. And then within six or seven months of me always being there, they said, Hector, you're always here. (laughs) You know, we just got a grant from the San Francisco Foundation. We can pay you $9 an hour to be the editor. I said, sure. And that was my first ever paid writing gig. And so, yeah, so I always equate this bookstore and, and, and San Francisco literary culture with the beginnings of my literary awakening. Yeah. And you share this, uh, and you share this um, anecdote, I hope, with your students. I, I'm mm-hmm. curious as to, and for any of you, um, young or older, um, mm-hmm. what advice you might have for people who want to become writers. Oh, the, Often it's just that. I mean, it can be... Uh, some stroke of luck, right? Uh, yeah, I think, and this is right part place, of the right message. Time. It's part of the message of the book. I don't speak about specifically about writing. Is that I think that we don't realize the profundity and the epic nature of our own stories. You know, because a lot of our students, my students, people in their twenties, they haven't really read a lot of great literature about the Latino experience. Those books are out there. And when I give them books, I mean, they're really excited about them, but they don't think of, they, they think of themselves as, as people that are not of consequence, you know? And so part of it is me asking them to write stories for me. I tell them, write me a story about the Latino experience. That's it. That's the only, that's, that's the parameter, right? And have it be true. I want it to be true. And so I get back all the, and that's what the, that's sort of what spurred the book is like, I got all these stories of like border crossings or fathers who were alcoholic, alcoholics and then born again and just, or fathers who were gardeners and, you know, and just built a whole empire of, you know, of tree trimming or whatever, you know, and it was like, my, my God, these incredible stories. And so to me, the most important thing is to realize how profoundly awesome those stories are, which I think a lot of our young people don't get that message because they're not on the media. You know, it's like they're not there's not a great streaming series in Netflix, you know, that's just about like that's like, you know, uh, like a Grapes of Wrath about, you know, about Latino farm. There isn't, you know, or, or where Latinos you bring up, you bring up Breaking Bad where. Oh, <laughs> right. That's what you see. Yes. You know, Narcos on uh, on Netflix, which are fantastic shows they're great works of art breaking bad i watched the whole series 
three times, really. And I also enjoy taking it apart <laughs> in my book. Um, yes, you have the, the cartel movie is the dominant representation of Latino people in the American media, right? It's what Latino actors, especially Latino male actors, get the most work, you know? There, someone told me, one of my students told me that there's a guy, an actor, who's played like, he's, he's played, he always is given the same name, but in, and he's always Hector, you know? Because Hector is like this Latino sounding name, Hector Salamanca, you know, uh, that, <laughs> that is kind of odd, you know, but it is, you know, whatever. And so, yeah. And so, but it really is kind of, it was, I think that when you look at these things, if you have compassion for the, for the people telling the lies, you realize what the lies are really about. And let me explain what I mean by that. So cartel movies are essentially movies about white people who feel the world is against them. So what they do is they take the, they take the cartel and they make it a substitute for the corporation. So your average white guy, you know, whatever, in quotes, because that term itself is completely whatever. Okay. Your average, like, you know, Walter White is the protagonist of Breaking Bad. So he goes to, you go to work for a company, you have a boss who treats you like shit, right? Who tells you, I own you, in effect, not using those words. And in the movie, that capitalistic force is the cartel. So the, the guys in the cartel, they're basically just your, your corporate executive making life miserable for everybody. You know, I own your ass is what they say in the cartel movies. And so these movies are really... And these television shows are really about a white sense of powerlessness. And they've, and they've created a bad guy, which is us, <laughs> right? They made us into this bad guy. And the other thing it does is it takes something very normal, like horror movies, like a horror movie. A horror movie takes something that's really normal and everyday, and it makes it into something scary. So, for example, in the movie Peppermint with Jennifer Garner, I'll never forgive her for this because I had to sit through that movie. I hated it. The cartel operatives are their undercover operation where they work is a piñata factory <laughs> because everybody now piñatas, I believe, are pretty universal. Not just Latino families use piñatas, right, in their birthday celebrations. And so... These cartel movies take this ordinary thing, which is the Latino guy next door. Everybody knows like a Latino person. You work with one, you're, he's your father-in-law or whatever. And it transforms him into the possible, you know, like, oh my God, he's really, he's really murderer, right? And so, um, yeah, to me, it's, it's really, uh, it was really a lot of fun to take that apart. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Back to your parents. They showered you with books too. They did. So they did yes. That made a difference. And yes. Did you have a chance to thank them for uh well, your collection here? Um, well, my you know, it's funny because I've I've written columns for the LA Times. I used to write a column. I used to write for the LA Times a lot. And my father would also often appear in my uh <laughs> in my columns and in my newspaper stories. And when I most recently went to Guatemala, my mother said, you're always writing about your father. <laughs> Why don't you write about me? And so now, if you, when you open up the book and you look at the cover page, that's my mother. 
holding me in 1963, uh, you know, when I was a newborn baby Griffith Park. at Griffith Park. But, you know, my, my parents also now I sort of talk about, um, you know, that they were um, personal sex, stuff. Yeah, personal stuff. They were they were very liberated people. I mean, there were people raised in these Roman Catholic society, Guatemala, with all these strictures. And suddenly they're like two really good looking people in Los Angeles in the 1960s and 70s. You know, Things a lot of happen. Yeah. I mean, and I met their lovers, you know, they were all they were coming through all the time, you know, <laughs> for many years of my child. And it was like, no, this is Joe and this is Dave. And this is like, you know, this is Linda, <laughs> my step parents. So, yeah, it was um, it was fun to write about. Um, it was fun to try to be honest without completely, you know, breaking my ties to my parents. So one of the things I did when the after I put it off forever and ever, I took, I finally, when the book came out in hardcover, when it came out, I went to my father's house and I read him the passages that were most problematic. And I told him, look, Papa, this is really about how handsome you were. I, I haven't heard back, but I know he's, uh, he's, but when I did, yeah, he's, he's very happy though with the, with the book. Yeah. Not just for that reason. I, uh, before I forget, I should also mention that you should, as subscribers to the New York Times, uh, read a piece that I think just went online today that Hector wrote about literary Los Angeles. It's part of this series you might have seen about other cities. So you write about um, some of the, well, Bukowski's in there, but not at length, thankfully. I, have to say. <laughs> I know City Lights. Uh, but um, yeah, it was cool to see. And that's so. so Again, you're still doing your journalism in addition to nonfiction and novels. And the New York Times asked me to uh, write a, a a journey through literary LA, uh, like boil down Los An all of Los Angeles literature to like 1,500 words. And so it was a great challenge, and I and I wrote it up, and it was wonderful to be asked. You know, I'm like, I'm just really. I think most writers were just really. We're just so grateful for those little affirmations, like being invited to City Lights <laughs> and having people actually show up. It's like, oh, thank God. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. Uh, and also being asked by the New York Times to write this literary guide. I was just so deeply honored. So I gave it my all. And it really is about, you know, you get to a certain age where you just can summarize all the stuff that you read. So it was a, a summary of the, a, a lifetime of reading about Los Angeles. Which is also what this book is about. It's really it's it's uh it's it's about a lifetime of reading about the United States, reading about Latino people, and trying to make sense of you know of of the time that we're living in. Yeah, so you should read that as well. Uh, and all you kind people, I'm sure you have questions for Hector. Uh, shall we talk about what you're writing now beyond? pieces for the New York Times? Um, you know, I think part of it and part of the nice thing about being here is um, I think that as a writer, you're always looking for reasons to be insecure. And so I've always felt like, oh, I'm a fiction writer. I'm a novelist and people don't know that. So I'm writing a novel. I got a Guggenheim to write, um, you know. Did see that. Congratulations. Yes, to write a series of novellas about Los Angeles and its history. Yes. Fantastic. So there it's they begin 500 years in the future and they go backwards all the way to the founding of the city in the 18th wow. century and oh, whatnot. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So I'm having a lot of fun doing that. That's what I'm working on. That will keep you busy. Yeah. 
and trying to make enough money to keep, you know, paying my kids tuition, college tuition. So there you have three kids. Yes. Homestretch. Are they all, are they all in college now? Um, I, they've uh, all either graduated or in college. Okay, yes. Okay. And since we're in the poetry room, I think this is the one room where you don't have or do you have any no no poetry no no i don't have any po- i've never heard any poetry no something you're not a triple threat <laughs> i've written some poems yes yeah, okay i also wrote a play once but that's another story okay yeah a little bit of everything well hector thank you so much i i think um we have books here yes i will sign, sign any book that anybody wants to buy and or take or i'm sorry uh, so thank you all. Thank you all for thank coming. You. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.